Hello, welcome to Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel they might not belong in the church anymore and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And these three views are the Kerygma, the Forgotten Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings and life of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. So let's do this. Today's topic is all about the Eucharist and sin, what many folks are getting wrong. So, Paul, what prompted uh, this topic? And um, what is it that we're getting wrong about the Eucharist? Yeah, so uh, it was funny because we had uh, another topic slated for this conversation. And I think I messaged you just yesterday and I was like, hey, let's scrap the topic that we had planned and let's just talk about something controversial right off the bat. <laughs> there you go. Grab the bull by the horns and just, you know. So yeah. um, in, in, in the past week, uh, Archbishop, um, I believe it's pronounced Corleone of San Francisco uh, announced that he is um, he is uh, barring uh, Nancy Pelosi and San Francisco's her home diocese um, from receiving communion in her home diocese. And this has sparked a lot of discussion uh, and, and a lot of feelings um, on not just both sides, but really all sides, both politically because the issue is around her stance on um, pro-abortion legislation or pro-choice legislation. And so like you have the political aspect and then you have a whole bunch of circles and opinions within the church itself about um, banning people from communion, why you should or shouldn't do it. And mm -hmm. a lot of those discussions I've felt have misrepresented um, what the church actually teaches and in doing so has misrepresented, um, you know, God and the church and what the purpose of the Eucharist is in the first place. Yeah. So I confess I've not followed a lot of this and maybe not everybody can follow all the details and, uh, and so on. Mostly I just follow where Peter is. It's like, I, I need my news kind of pre-digested by people I trust. So anyhow, that being the case, um, could you outline what, what are these, what are the views? What are the competing views sort of, let's just, let's outline them, put them on the table so that, you know, Good, the yeah. Bad and ugly. Yeah. And I'll get my bias out of the way first. And that is that uh, I'm really conflicted uh, about this. Um, and, and I don't know where I fall yet. Um, mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I guess that's my bias. Uh, I just don't like everybody. Uh, so um, within the church, um, I think that there's consensus um, amongst at least bishops and certainly mm -hmm. between uh, bishops in the US and, uh, you know, the Pope and the leaders in Rome that th th that abortion is gravely evil. Um, mm. I, I don't think there are any pro-choice bishops in the U.S., so I don't think there's any disagreement, um, at least from the hierarchy, on this. Mm -hmm. That uh, yeah, there is disagreement on um, what is the role of these canonical sanctions because that's what that's what the Archbishop did. He, he put a canonical sanction in some way on, on Nancy Pelosi. Um, what's the proper role of these canonical station, um, sanctions? Um, what is, um, and then with that then also, there's different debates on um, what does receiving communion mean? Mm -hmm. And then how does that relate to scandal? And how does, how does that relate to sin? And um, I mean, you're probably gonna get as many different responses to those things as people you ask. So mm -hmm. there are more pro-choice Catholic commentators and um, who, uh, who, who will disagree with this position on political grounds, but there's also pro-life Catholic commentators who are going to disagree with the Archbishop's decision on mm -hmm. pastoral grounds. And it's just a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when uh, just the other day you were chatting about this and uh, wanting to bring this up. And I, like we said, just for the call, I don't know that I have an opinion. Um, I've got competing senses, you know, about this. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this because I don't know what to think, you know, and maybe there are plenty of others who do, and, and hopefully this is a helpful kind of conversation. So, um, like, so again, let's maybe 
sort of keep circling through this, through this sort of the inciting incident, like who are the people in play? But I think what's more important is um, what's, what is the, the theory or the idea? And I know the Holy Father always says realities are greater than ideas. So what I'm looking for is what are the ideas that are not correct, that are unhelpful, that are, you know, 90% there, but it's that final 10% that's the problem, you know? And, um, and then what we can do towards the latter half of this, this uh, conversation is talk about, you know, based on our three pillars that we talked about in the previous episode, kerygma, theosis, and, and the guidance of our Holy Father, how should those inform a response and see, see where that goes. So back over to you. Let's talk about, like you said, the role of communion, scandal, what the catechism yeah. has to say, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So here's, so here's some of the realities. Um, and that is... Uh, I don't know some things off the top of my head um, th- that abortion is horrendously and, and, and gravely evil. That it's a direct attack on human life. Um, that is, it's horrendous ableism. It's discrimination against people because of their uh, be- because of their development. Um, it's also tremendously complicated. Um, it's different than other issues where you have systemic attacks on certain people like slavery or racism um, or even the death penalty, because in those cases, the oppressors are in positions of power. In the case with abortion, in, in most instances, um, the 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 mothers are themselves um in vulnerable positions right. uh, either it's in their re- from a position of power correct either in their own relationships either economically mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different things so it's complicated and i think it's okay to say that it's complicated while also saying um while also saying that abortion is gravely wrong and also saying that um, legislating abortion, deregulating abortion, I think is just enabling a culture and enabling an economic system that uh, um, puts women in these positions in the first place. Um, So it's complicated. Yeah. I think, again, there's like, well, reality is greater than ideas. To, To say that it is gravely wrong and so on no argument obviously with that and it's not my place to argue about that but it's like how that then becomes reality and the the concrete circumstances of millions of of women like you said they don't feel like they have a choice uh they have been taught to think about this whole situation in specific ways it just feels monumentally impossible and so on and so all of that can then mitigate you know or to take away the gravity of I don't know. I'm not a theologian here. One's participation in something, you know, it's like, yes, murder is wrong. It's like, but in defense of your life, it's like, well, that changes the conversation, yeah. you know? And I think a lot of people feel like it is, it's in defense of my life maybe, or my life choices or situation. And it's not as clear cut to a lot of other people. It, it, it also means that you can have, you know, a group of Catholics who are all opposed to, strongly opposed to abortion, but you have different uh, opinions on how to oppose abortion legislatively, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there isn't a like monolithic Catholic um, policy position necessarily. Mm -hmm. However, ideally, a nation's laws don't um, enshrine ableism, don't enshrine discrimination, don't Mm -hmm. enshrine... um, so you're, you're talking about the recent, um, the, the Roe v. Wade changes that I think, what, what did they do? They took it out of the court, the federal court and returned it back to state well, courts? Yes. So the Supreme Court hasn't done anything yet officially, but there was a leaked draft that would, um, that if implemented would reverse Roe versus Wade, which would then um, eliminate a federal legal right to abortion. And then okay. the issue would move to the states. So that's in the context. Um, so it's complicated. There's a lot of variety, uh, of perspectives that, that pro-life Catholics can have. Mm-hmm. However, um, Nancy Pelosi's, um, policies, um, 
at least from my understanding of them, is she has supported and continues to support legislation that um, that many describe as pro-abortion, as not trying to reduce abortions, but as trying, doing whatever she can to enshrine the right to abortion legislatively. Mm -hmm. um, and this position um, would be contrary to the church's teaching. You can have some nuanced positions on how to uh, how to mitigate abortion and things like that, but you can't. There isn't really nuance on um, being a champion for the like legal right to abortion. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like a matter of mitigating versus championing. Now, I confess, I don't follow the news perhaps, you know, as much as you do. So, um, uh, I guess one question I got to ask is. Uh, is that the case or is that how she is being uh, painted? And again, I have no opinion on it all. Um, is she legitimately like championing it as, well, how, how is she championing it? Like, do you, do we have a sense of how she thinks about it such yeah. that like we actively try to be God save us, you know, Catholic first. And then for example, Americans second, not that they're in conflict, but it's a matter of priority. But that's not the norm for most Catholics. They, you know, see ourselves very clearly as well. I'm American first, and then, well, my faith is kind of an add-on that you know, working on, I'm practicing, you know, I'm practicing that. Where do you think she fits? Like, what does her faith mean to her? Yeah, being on the outside and not wanting to judge or condemn her. So, um, and I don't follow a political news as much as I follow church news. Actually, um, from what I've seen. Um, so she has supported just just recently um, federal legislation in Congress that would essentially take what the Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade and mm -hmm. enshrine it legislatively so that if the Supreme Court reverses Roe versus Wade, there's still a federal law that effectively does what Roe versus Wade has done. Mm -hmm. um, and she's been a big supporter of that from what I understand. Um, okay. um, I mean, her own personal faith, um, I honestly don't feel comfortable speaking to. I want to take people on their word when they say that their faith is important to them. Um, mm -hmm. But actions also do speak more than words. So uh, I don't know, to use Pope Francis's line, uh, I'm, not, I'm not one to judge her soul or mm -hmm. how convicted she is on in her faith. Is it fair to assume that she's well-meaning, well-intended perhaps, and uh, she's acting out of a philosophy or an understanding of what this is and how it works and feels like she doesn't have problem of conscience. I mean, is that fair to say that? Yeah. I think we should always assume that people are well-meaning. This is maybe a rabbit hole, but years ago, um, when the Supreme Court decision on Oberfell came out, which um, legalized um, same-sex marriages in the United States, there was a discussion from a Catholic, and I'm forgetting his name. He was on some talk show, and he and he was uh, taking the uh, traditional marriage position, mm -hmm. and he was and he and he was debating um, somebody who took um, a pro-same-sex marriage position, and he made a point which I thought was a very good point, and he's like. If we can't presume from the get-go that the person that we disagree with uh, is of sound mind and goodwill, then we really can't have a dialogue with somebody. Mm -hmm. And uh, I try and presume that as best as I can of everybody. And, and I would presume that of Nancy Pelosi, that um, she's, she's not an idiot and um, she has goodwill. I don't know if that's actually the case, but I think it's my responsibility to presume that. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of like clearing up how we're trying to approach this, I think I appreciate um, what you've shared here. So let's talk maybe more about uh, communion. Like what is it and then how is it being misrepresented? Yeah. So uh, much more so than politics, uh, catechesis is my wheelhouse. So there's been a lot of discussion on what is the Eucharist and communion and like what is sin and what are the things that prevent people from being able to receive communion. And 
there's a lot that I could say about the Eucharist. We could spend multiple shows talking about the Eucharist. But for the purposes of this discussion, receiving communion is a nonverbal, like it's a uh, it's an action that professes that someone is in communion with the church and in communion with God. Mm-hmm. But it's not only someone's profession of that reality, it is the sacrament um, makes that reality happen. It actualizes that communion. So um, uh, in one of Pope Benedict's, uh, I believe it was Pope Benedict, his documents on the Eucharist, he quotes St. Augustine who says that, that the Eucharist not only makes us Christians, but makes us Christ himself, mm-hmm. right? Well, what the Holy Spirit does through the Eucharist is that it actually makes us a part of the body of Christ and it actually unites us to God, right? So this is the idea of theosis. And the, the, the Eucharist uh, is maybe the, the, the sacrament par excellence of theosis, right? So it's a profession of communion with God in the church. And it's the actualization of that profession. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So mm-hmm. so then the question of who can receive, who, who can't receive communion and... Uh, I'll speak generally like three broad categories of people who can't receive communion mm-hmm. or the church says shouldn't receive communion. Right. The first is, is non-Catholics. And the reason is, is because they aren't in full communion with the church. So then the profession that comes with them receiving communion would be disingenuous. There would be conflict there, right? Their reality of not being in full communion with the church would conflict with their action of receiving communion which is the profession of being in full communion with the church. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are certain circumstances where non-Catholic Christians can receive. Those are um, rare and extenuating um, circumstances. But it's, um, it's almost always because they have, like the whole baptism of desire, they have an intent of being in union with the church, even if they haven't checked all the boxes and you know cor- gone through all the normal. Correct. It, and it's usually when they're close to death or there's, it's extenuating circumstances, but the general norm is that if you're not Catholic, then um, uh, then you shouldn't receive communion. The second group uh, who, of people who shouldn't receive communion are people who are conscious of having committed a mortal sin. And that's because the reality of mortal sin is that it's an action that separates someone from God and from the church. So if someone has committed a mortal sin, then they are no longer in communion with the church or with God. Mm-hmm. So you're really, so it's the same reason as, as the first situation, right? Their actual reality is not being in communion. So receiving communion, it's mm-hmm. disingenuous. There's a, there's the opposition there. Now, um, I want to come back to mortal sin in a second, but the third category uh, comes from, uh, canon law, um, and I have notes, canon law 915. And that short law from canon law essentially says people who, people who can't receive communion are Catholics who have been excommunicated or who are under some other type of legal, um, prohibition and people who quote, obstinately persevere in manifest grave sin. So that's the justification that's being used to deny pro-choice politicians like Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi um, is because they, in their support of, uh, in their support of abortion, they are obstinately persevering mm-hmm. in manifest grave sin. So I want to talk about what that is and talk about more. Yeah, let's unpack that because yeah. my immediate thought is going back to our earlier, um, you know, statement of assuming goodwill. Um. How does anybody uh, state of somebody else that they are in manifest grave sin when they don't think they are? And, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe that's exactly where you're going to go. So that, go ahead. And, and that's precisely the question. So, man, we could spend a whole episode talking yeah. about mortal sin and how people misunderstand it. So, man, I teach just the middle schoolers and people still don't get it. So the catechism says there's three criteria for mortal sin. Mm-hmm. So think of it like a cookie that has three ingredients. All three are necessary. If one is missing, it's not a cookie. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
eggs, butter, flour, whatever, right? Those three criteria are the action, you have to have grave matter, right? The thing being done um, is, is severely harmful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have n- knowledge that this action is grave and you have to freely do it. Okay. In so much of our conversations, and I'll point one concrete uh, uh, situation out from just recently, we collapse knowledge and freedom together. Mm. And we can't do that. We assume mm-hmm. that if someone knows that something's wrong, that they're, that they're free to choose not to do it. And here's an outrageous example to make my point. Let's say like the mafia shows up to my house and holds my family at gunpoint and says, mm-hmm. hey, I need you to, uh, you need to rob the bank downtown and bring us the money or we'll kill your family. Okay. Now, if I know that robbing the bank is wrong. I know that it's gravely wrong. If I go and rob that bank, though, am I freely robbing that bank? No. No. Right? So, so the catechism actually lists um, a whole bunch of things that mitigate our freedom. So this is catechism 1735. It says imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified. Our freedom can even be nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, inordinate attachments, and other psychological or social factors. And the church has reaffirmed that these conditions apply even for uh, gravely evil actions and even for intrinsically evil actions, Mm -hmm. Um, that these things reduce freedom. So in the, you know, bank robbing case, uh, I'm, I'm being coerced. So I'm not free. I'm, I'm deliberately robbing the bank, but I'm not freely robbing the bank. Right. Yeah. And I think we can also then, you know, um, what's the word extend from that. For example, I don't know if you have undiagnosed psychological issues that impacts your freedom from the outside. They're undiagnosed. Nobody can recognize them, but it is part of, you know, of your reality or, uh, long-term habit uh, habits, you know, habituated responses that also can diminish freedom. Um, and in our case, it's a war of not in our case in in the world today. It's a war of philosophies that people get incredibly passionate about and fundamentally disagree with each other on. And the impression I'm getting here is she's approached in her case, you know, but even outside of her unique case, it's a, a situation of her understanding something according to one set of terms, one way of articulating things versus another. To be clear, though, Mm -hmm. someone who may not be culpable, uh, the harm they're doing is is very real, right? So like you talked about someone with a psychological disorder, let's say someone has a personality disorder, um, a narcissistic personality disorder, um, or um, antisocial personality disorder, someone's a sociopath, okay? They may not be culpable for their lies, for their violence, but those lies and violence still do actual harm, right? Right. And so talking about reduced culpability doesn't diminish the objective harm that's done. I'm simply trying to, to share that the church teaches that mortal sin is both. It has objective elements. There's objective behavior that can be seen and measured and, and looked at and assessed by others. Mm-hmm. But there's also a subjective reality and that's someone's knowledge and that's someone's freedom. But even if someone isn't fully culpable, that doesn't diminish the harm that's being objectively done. Yeah. But it does mean that we cannot slip and fall into mortal sin. Like we can't accidentally right. commit a mortal sin. Uh, by definition, we can't accidentally commit a mortal mm-hmm. sin because it has to be a free and conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's an example. So I was reading just a few days ago an article from Catholic News Agency, um, and the title is something like, here are the two basic requirements for Catholics to receive communion. Um, and here's a short quote from that article. It says, what is mortal sin? 
The uh, Catechism explains that a mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God. And then it continue, the article continues, For a sin to be mortal or deadly, one must be aware that the act is sinful and conscientiously commit it anyway. Hmm. Conscientiously just means intentionally. Right. I intention is not freedom. This this teaching in this article from Catholic News Agency collapses freedom into knowledge. If you know it's wrong, then you're free to not do it. And that is not the case. Mm -hmm. In the case of um, Catholics in positions of secular authority or political authority or leadership or so on, they're also under an incredible amount of pressure. I mean, I think mafia could also be an interesting um, uh, corollary yeah. for the little that I know of how the inner workings in life of politics is uh, you owe a lot of people or you are responsible to a lot of people, not just for, and there's an incredible amount of pressure on you and your personal life and the decisions you make and the lobbyists and so on. So what sort of freedom, you know, is someone like, uh, like her, you know, she might know, but then again, one could also ask, what does she know? And what has she actually said about that? And I'm going to say that her culpability her freedom, her understanding actually doesn't matter. Um, my understanding of, of Canon 915, where mm -hmm. it talks about someone who's obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin. This is a legal document. This is a law. Um, it's not a pastoral, Canon law is not a pastoral document, right? Mm -hmm. When it says grave sin, it's talking about the objective behavior, right? It's, it's talking about scandal. What it's saying is that the church ought to be concerned about Catholics going up and receiving communion, mm -hmm. whether they're culpable of a mortal sin or not, we're setting that aside. Mm -hmm. The church ought to be concerned with someone who's doing objectively harmful, gravely like damaging things and going mm -hmm. up and receiving communion um, as if that's just fine, right? Mm -hmm. They're making this profession that they are in union with Christ and in union with the church even mm -hmm. though their behavior is uh, grossly harmful. Right. All right. So, so why don't we, let's shift to that. Let's talk about scandal. Um, yes. Before doing that briefly, we would like to thank a sponsor, select to give They've been wonderful. Uh, they're good friends. Please check them out. Um, as they say, more Catholic leaders choose select international tours than any other pilgrimage company. They have 35 years of award-winning travel planning, a track record of excellence and faithfulness small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimages helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work helping Christian families in the Holy Land. If you are ready to travel or you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting selectinternationaltours.com. Okay, can we talk about scandal then? And uh, who gets to state whether something is scandalous or not, you know? Because I see that as that's a concern for me. It's like every blogger just waves their finger at everything. It's like, well, so what constitutes a scandal? Yeah. So what constitutes a scandal is um, it's kind of culturally subjective. So for a long time, the church said that anyone who uh, lends money and receives interest on that loan, which the church has traditionally called usury, mm -hmm. for a long time, for centuries, the church said, Someone who lends money and receives interest um, is causing grave scandal and shouldn't present themselves for communion. Uh, that is not the case today. <laughs> right. um, and, and we're seeing a shift play out now. And this is a different podcast um, of like whether or not Catholics who are divorced and remarried um, should be able to present themselves for communion. That's that's like an that's something that's an active development in the church right now. Right. So there's some like cultural subjectivity to that. Mm -hmm. Is a Catholic who supports um, pro-choice legislation causing scandal? It's a real question that many people may come to different answers to. The church ultimately leaves that determination, though, to the local pastor who is of the, the pastor of the local church who is the diocesan bishop. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the bishop who's the competent authority to determine that it's not the USCCB. It's not the U S conference of Catholic bishops. Mm -hmm. It's an individual's local bishop. Um, 
who, who, yeah. So in this case, Archbishop Corderleone has said essentially that Nancy Pelosi's behavior um, is causing scandal. Um, so to reduce that scandal, to mitigate that harm, mm -hmm. um, uh, we are preventing her, or I'm, he's saying I'm preventing her from receiving communion here. Okay. So to speak of um, competent authority, especially in this case, but then in general, uh, he is the competent uh, person who can speak on this. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, and a bit of a sidebar, it's showing my lack of understanding, but what happens when you have <clears throat> different bishops, maybe in different places around the world? Like you said, it's it's kind of a culturally, scandal is a culturally based sort of thing, but what happens when you get people who aren't marching to the same tune among competent authorities, bishops? You know? Yeah. So that's part of that's part of the discussion that's going on right now because of this. Mm -hmm. um, so even so, globally, there are a lot of countries in Europe that have um, laws that allow that, uh, that allow legal abortions to various degrees. So you mm -hmm. have pro-choice politicians who are Catholic in different countries around the world. And my understanding is that this debate of whether or not pro-choice Catholic politicians, um, sh whether they should or shouldn't receive communion is solely happening in the US. Italy is not having that discussion. Germany is not having that discussion. England's not having that discussion. It's just a US discussion. Um, and, but even within the US, for example, Archbishop, no, sorry, Cardinal Gregory in Washington, D.C. Um, has, and I forget his exact statement. So um, my impression of what he said was essentially Archbishop Corleone has jurisdiction over his diocese in my, I'm not going to enforce his policy in, in my diocese in D.C. So you even see like discrepancies within the U.S. about this. Mm -hmm. Um so there are people, and I think this is a legitimate question to ask, when you see that much difference in opinion amongst bishops, is that disunity causing scandal in and of mm -hmm. itself? Where would you um, go with that? I don't know what, where I land. How are you thinking of, of handling that? Um, uh, so I wanted to talk about this, but but but, but in, on another hand, I hate talking about this. Um, mm. I don't like this topic because I feel like there isn't. I I just I just don't like any of it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like seeing the discussions or like the post from Catholics who are like celebrating Nancy Pelosi not being able to receive communion because that's a terrible like it's a it's a tragedy all around. We shouldn't be celebrating it. Right. But I think. Abortion is horrific. And I don't know how, and this is personally, I don't know how someone can can value human life mm -hmm. and, and support openly pro-choice legislation. I can't mm -hmm. reconcile that in my own conscience. Um, and honestly, I don't have much taste for politicians in general. I especially don't have taste in politicians who... Um, parade their faith around in a way to like gain support. Yeah. So I really don't want to defend. <laughs> I have no interest in defending Nancy Pelosi whatsoever. Um, I think, I think the greater scandal and the greater division is a lack of consistency amongst, amongst bishops mm -hmm. in, in the types of politicians who they're asking this question about. Mm -hmm. So as um, in my understanding, this question of whether or not Catholic politicians should receive communion is centered only around abortion and not anything else. Whereas mm -hmm. two years ago, we had a Catholic attorney general, Bill Barr, who reinstated the federal death penalty. And personally, I mean, he wasn't in the execution chamber, but it was he personally allowed I think it was 17, 15, I forget the exact number, over a dozen people to be executed. This is mm -hmm. after the Pope's teaching. Mm -hmm. And during this time, there was no discussion anywhere that I saw from any bishop who was like, should Bill Barr be receiving communion because of these actions? Instead, mm -hmm. actually, at a National Catholic breakfast, this is days before another person's executed under his watch. Um, 
Bishop Barron, Archbishop Chapu, all of these bishops are giving him awards and praising him for his, uh, for you know, his, his being a Catholic politician. So, to me, that type of division, I personally question if the perception of partisanship, which is really what this feels like, if mm -hmm. if that causes more scandal than what Archbishop Corderleone is trying to mitigate. Um, which I'm not saying he's necessarily partisan. I mean, I just saw him tweet yesterday or today um, in, the, in the wake of the, the school shooting in Texas, pro-gun regulation policy, mm -hmm. um, which I was very thankful to see him tweet. So I, I don't know if he's partisan. I'm not going to accuse him of that. But I think there's a real perception of partisanship mm -hmm. that regular Catholics have of, of the bishops. And that does cause real scandal, I think. Yeah, and just for the clarity of it, why is that a problem, this partisan perception? Or even total buy-in on the part of us in the pews and, and you know, many celebrities or celebrities, uh, public influencers and so on in the Catholic space. Why is that a problem? Yeah, um, the church Huge has- concept, yeah. yeah. The church has taught and does teach and this has always been the case throughout Catholic tradition. The gospel must be a Christian's fundamental value. And the church has always encouraged people to participate in politics mm -hmm. um, and sees being a politician as a very noble vocation. But when doing so, we must put the values of the gospel before our political values, before our our ideological values and before our partisan values. Mm -hmm. But when you see uh, Catholics who um, go like whole hog in support of a particular party or particular ideology, what happens is, is that they're, sub they're subverting it. They're making their political or their partisan values more important than the gospel. And what we see consistently then is a misrepresentation of, uh, of the gospel. So, you have, and painting with a broad brush, Catholic Democrats who are like, yes, on the church's teaching on environmentalism. Yes, on the church's teaching on social justice. Yes, on the church's teaching on racism. Yes, on the church's teaching on caring for the poor and social safety nets. But no on the church's teaching on uh, the life and value of unborn people. Or you have Catholic Republicans who are like, yes, on the church's teaching on the life and value of unborn people, but no on the church's teaching on environmentalism, no on the church's teaching on immigration, right? Mm -hmm. um, they are walking scandals because they are misrepresenting the gospel and uh, in, in what they're doing. And it's worse when we see Catholic clerics, Catholic bishops who are perceived to be partisan because that distorts um, it distorts the gospel. The gospel is supposed to challenge our political ideologies. It's supposed to make us profoundly uncomfortable in whatever political party we're in. Mm -hmm. But if you see bishops and clerics being partisan, it helps people be comfortable in their party. And that's the opposite of what the gospel needs to be doing. Yeah. So starting to come back then to the question for this section, which was who gets, not only who gets to define scandal, but who gets, who, who is in scandal? Because from what we're saying here, one of the things I'm hearing is, well, some everybody's in scandal at some point or on something, you know. We and which is also, I think, a pretty accurate. You know, everybody's, you know, working through some sort of element of their journey. You know, they're working through some attachment, some sin, or something. So, who to come back to that core question? Who can't uh, receive communion? And because then the next question I want to get to is, what should be our appropriate response? Uh, not being her or not being particular people. Should we, well, we can get to that. So coming back to that, who, who can't uh, receive communion? Yeah. So um, it's those, it's those, it's those three groups of people. So if someone is Catholic and you're aware of mortal sin, mm -hmm. the church asks you to, um, unless there's extreme circumstances to go to confession first. Mm-hmm. Or if your bishop has asked you not to receive communion, mm -hmm. um, 
you shouldn't go to communion. Um, and the church places a high level of value. Our tradition places a high level of value in obedience, mm -hmm. even if you disagree with the competent authority. Um, and you see this with saints throughout all the time where ultimately the saints were proved right. Mm -hmm. But that was after years of, uh, of being unjustly treated and being obedient to that unjust treatment from their competent authorities. So not necessarily saying she's a saint? No. no. <laughs> Again, I have no interest in defending Nancy Pelosi or any politician. <laughs> even stepping away from her situation. For somebody who feels like they're in a similar situation where a competent authority or their local parish priest or I don't know, the local bishop or someone is telling them, I tell you that you are causing scandal. Could a, could a bishop tell someone you're in manifest grave sin? Or you're yeah. in an occasion of that or something? I think that's what Arch, Archbishop Corleone did. Okay. Um, so, but then he's restricted to that that uh, pronouncement within his diocese, right? If she correct. goes across the border, border into another diocese, um, and if she's she disagrees, or not she, that person, you, I disagree with them. This, I, I think you're wrong, but you know, maybe I'll accept that. But then when your job's on the line, you know, because of it, or it's a choice that significantly impacts your identity. Um, well, then what do you do? Yeah. Here's a story, I guess. And here's a teaching, I think, to go with it. Uh, one of the icons behind me, this one, is uh, uh, St. Mark. I think it's Chinese. I think it's Zhai uh, Tiangsheng. Uh, um, in the 1800s, uh, he was a Catholic physician, and he was known for um, serving his community and serving the poor. When he was uh, in his 30s, I believe, I, he came down with some um, stomach illness. And the treatment for that was opium. Mm -hmm. And he became addicted to opium and um, was an addict, was addicted to opium for the, uh, the rest of his life. Um, he went to confession on a regular basis and his pastor, his confessor refused to give him absolution, which therefore, therefore barred him from receiving communion because his confessor didn't think he um, wanted uh, to stop using drugs enough. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of his life, he couldn't receive communion. Wow. This went on for decades in the year 1900 during the uh, Boxer rebellion. Uh, in China, there was Catholic persecution, and he died a martyr and is named a saint. Um, this story is significant in many ways. One is um, uh, the r reality of addiction and mental health and how it's changed since the 1800s. Mm -hmm. But also there's this recognition that someone can be in manifest grave sin, which he was, and still grow in holiness in such a profound way, can still be allowing grace to configure them to Christ in such a profound way mm -hmm. that, that they can die a martyr, um, even though they're in objective grave sin. It also shows the value of obedience as well. He was being unjustly treated, which isn't, I mean, his confessor, let's presume he didn't know any better, right? He didn't know the reality of addiction back then. I'm not saying his confessor was, you know, a villain, but he was wrong. And in doing so, St. Mark was unjustly treated for decades. He was denied um, communion. But in being obedient to that, that itself, that obedience itself was an avenue for grace um, to divinize him. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. Along with that story, though, and, and this quote from Pope Francis has, has been thrown a, a, around a lot in the past week. So I want to contextualize it and I want to unpack it. And it relates to all of this. So this is from uh, the Pope's document, Evangelii Gaudium, the Joy of the Gospel. And it's under the section of the church's mother. He, the Pope says this. Uh, he says, everyone can share in some way in the life of the church. Everyone can be a part of the community. Nor should the doors of the sacraments be closed for simply any reason. This is especially true of the sacrament, which is itself the door, which is baptism. The Eucharist, 
although it is the fullness of sacramental life, is not a price for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. These convictions have pastoral consequences that we are called to consider with prudence and boldness. Frequently, the Pope says, we act as arbiters of grace rather than its facilitators, but the church is not a toll house. It is the house of the Father, where there is a place for everyone with all of their problems. What the Pope is saying here is that even people who are in, even people like St. Mark, whose life from the outside looks absolutely wrecked, mm -hmm. um, communion is still a place for them to receive healing. Um, because this is going back to like the cookie cutter, sorry, the uh, uh, cookie recipe for mortal sin. Mm -hmm. If one of those three criteria is grave matter, knowledge, and freedom, if one of them is missing, mm -hmm. is not a mortal sin anymore. It is something different. So in St. Mark's case, his actions were gravely, were grave, and he acknowledged that they were grave, but he didn't have the freedom. So he was not in mortal sin, and he should have been able to receive communion. So what the Pope is saying in this passage is that on a pastoral level, mm -hmm. pastors need to be able to work with the people they're pastoring and help them discern that even if they may be living in a way that's objectively uh, like contrary, uh, like in St. Mark's case, objectively contrary to the church's teaching, to the moral law, that are they still subjectively guilty of mortal sin? And if not, the Eucharist is actually precisely the right medicine mm -hmm. to heal their weakness. Mm -hmm. um, because mortal sin is not weakness. If there is weakness, it can't be mortal sin. Because mortal sin means someone is freely choosing it. Um, however, what the Pope isn't saying in this is that we shouldn't bar anyone from mortal sin. Right? He says uh, the doors of the sacraments shouldn't be closed for simply any reason. He's not saying they shouldn't be they shouldn't ever be closed. Right. Um, so I think I think that's confusion too. Um, but this passage from the Pope, he's talking about the subjective discernment of individuals pastorally about whether or not they're in mortal sin. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about the legal objective is someone's, you know, public behavior causing scandal. Yeah. I love the, the warmth and the, the fatherliness, you know, of, of his quote, the one that you've selected and you've shared there. Uh, we take a moment and talk about the father's heart catechesis. And then uh, the next thing I want to ask is about the way that uh, we are, what feels like weaponizing the Eucharist. Uh, and I think where Peter is has been blogging and talking about this for almost the last years since it became a discernible thing, you know, so that, that question, how, how should we as lay people who are not the two prime components of this major discussion, the rest of us, how should we be reacting to this? So let's, uh, let's talk about Father's Heart Catechesis. What is it? Yeah, the, this podcast is uh, sponsored by, supported by, I don't know, uh, uh, Father's Heart Catechesis, which is a online catechesis program, small group catechesis that I've started, um, which will proclaim at every level the kerygma, God's love for all people. It's inspired by Pope Francis. It's centered on theosis. It's grounded in the magisterium of the church. Um, it's for um, people um, who are ministers, who are catechists, for catechist formation. It's for regular Catholics. It's for Catholics who may not feel like they belong in the church and they want to know more. They want to know what the church actually teaches. Um, so if you want to know more, you can uh, get more information at pfehe.com. That's P-F-A-H-E-Y.com. Fantastic. All right. Let's talk about um, our response, you know, as, as lay people, third party, you know, uh, because what concerns me is... Um, the, the the urge to want to judge very quickly to not be able to look at the larger picture you know uh and then to start pointing at other people in our parishes um and and just completely miss the opportunity to look at ourselves you know and come back to the center of the three pillars that we're talking about the kerygma theosis and, and pope francis and his guidance and so how does a topic like this just detract and and destroy our ability to be credible witnesses of of this joy and of this hope of the gospel when it seems like 
<laughs> the, the Eucharist is a weapon we can use to define who is and isn't worthy enough uh, to, to participate in under the label, you know? Yeah. What I have seen, what I have participated in, in the church is a profound partisanship and culture war that seeped into um, Amer uh, the way Catholicism is practiced in the United States at mm -hmm. so many levels. Um, we really, really want to label our group as the Orthodox as the right group and label the other people as not really belonging in the church. This impulse is very, very present in churches, at parish levels, at diocesan levels, all over mm -hmm. the place. And Pope Francis, his teaching and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying that is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's something that we have to do a lot, a very vulnerable self-reflection on. Even going back to, do I believe Nancy Pelosi? Do I believe Archbishop Cordelione? Do I believe that they are um, intelligent people acting in goodwill? If I don't actually believe that, if I think that they are villains, like that's a problem. That's my problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because it means I'm judging, uh, it means I'm judging their soul in a way that I have it's no knowledge of. Yeah. yeah, it's not my business. And I'm, I'm not the competent authority to judge that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's, I think that's a real question. And I think that, um, and again, I participated in this in, in college, especially of if someone disagreed with me about exactly the policy decisions I thought needed to happen when it came to abortion, mm -hmm. then they were, you know, soft on abortion, probably pro-choice and probably shouldn't receive communion. Like that was my instant line of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be abortion. It can be any issue. Um, right. And what Pope Francis is saying is that the church is the home for everybody. And we all have our own weaknesses. We all have our own flaws. We all have our own ideologies and lies and fears that we're attached to. But it's precisely in the church. It's precisely from Jesus. It's precisely through the Eucharist mm -hmm. that we're going to find healing from this. Mm -hmm. um, it is not our job. And I do not envy any any bishop when he has to make these decisions. Um because they're not easy decisions to make. Uh, I'm thankful that it is, is not my job to judge the soul of anybody else. It's uh, it's not my job to judge whether or not someone's behavior is scandalous or not. Um, yeah. So trying to, for me, I'm trying to understand the sort of, I guess like the underlying theory, but still be allow a reality to inform that. Um, and in a moment, I want to come to our, our core pillars and talk about how they should be informing, you know, a response, maybe a healthy doubt or a skepticism towards the whole thing, you know. Um, but taking a situation where, let's say, I uh, am going to my local parish and have been told, you know, am experiencing what you know someone like her is going through, and I fundamentally disagree with an expression of the faith uh, that is being articulated by local pastor, the local bishop. But I still have my own deep love for the church, uh, for what it means to be Catholic. And maybe I articulate that a bit differently. But I look at all the documents and I see myself in complete union, but it's the, the wiggle room areas where perhaps I've aligned myself differently, right? Um, what should my response be? And you've kind of articulated that with St. Mark. But then what should I expect from others? You know, or if I'm seeing someone in my parish who is like that, what should a an appropriate response be um, to seeing someone like that? Yeah. I remember years ago, this would have been probably the 2012 election in the United States presidential election. I was at my local parish and I saw a few cars in the parking lot with Obama bumper stickers. And my instant feeling, my instant thought, was they shouldn't be here. So to answer your question, the first response is not that. Right. Um, I really think the 
going back to realities are more important than ideas. I think the first reality perhaps is our own reality and to look inward first at the ways that uh, I'm not worthy to receive the Eucharist, which we say every time we, uh, every time we go to mass before we receive communion, that's what we say. The ways that I don't put the gospel first, the way that I put my politics first, the way I'm not giving other people the benefit of the doubt and let that reality of my own sinfulness move me not to a place of shame, but to a place where I recognize that I am weak um, and that I am in need of healing so that A, I continually run to the Father for healing and B, it prevents me from being able to build myself a little pedestal to stand on and judge others. Mm -hmm. um, that self-reflection is absolutely essential. I like your point about um, the, the self-reflection, the self-awareness to recognize our own sin, but like you said, not, not to fester in a place of shame, which I see happening a lot, but to, to instead be able, if this is my, not just my reality, this is reality, um, and God is still holding out and, and hounding me and chasing me, which is our kerygma, like we talked last time, that core fundamental reality, then that's a place of hope. And I can offer and hold out that hope um, to others. Um, so I don't know. I think the thing that, the, the thing that concerns me is seeing not just virtue signaling, but it's like virtue baiting, um, where, you know, this is completely me prior to, well, maybe yesterday. I'm sure it's an ongoing thing I'll have to deal with forever. But that line that the par parable where Christ is, says, you know, there's the two people in the temple and one is like, God, thank God I am not like them. Here, let me post about that. I'm going to tweet about that. You know, let me make sure everybody knows just in case, you know, in case anybody was wondering, you know, uh, which they weren't, you know. And I think, I think that I don't know what to think yet solidly, but I think that my response to all of this would be, it's not my business to post about this in general. It is certainly my business to think about what do I need to do where I'm falling short and what's the maximum level of charity that can be worked in this. Uh, and I don't know. I, I feel as though like it's an in, in not inadequate response, but it's an incomplete one because the temptation is, well, I got to act, I got to do something. And I think that's also not always a good response. That compulsion, that's another, you know, unrefined or unpracticed, you know, response to a problem in the world doesn't always need an immediate response. Maybe it needs a heck of a lot of silence. Yeah. I think even, even before the desire to immediately have an action is, is the desire to immediately have a firm opinion. Cause this isn't something, it's certainly something I don't feel like I need to have a strong opinion about. Yeah. Um, Especially if like you pointed out the competent authorities, the bishops themselves don't have a firm opinion. I feel like the rest of us should be, well, let just pray for them to figure it out and, and get on the same page because otherwise we're, we're aping their authority or we're assuming to ourselves an ability to judge and decide and decipher um, that they themselves haven't quite figured out. Is that, is that right? Am I wrong? Um, I, I think maybe, I mean, I think there's a place for judgment. Like mm -hmm. I can look at people's actions. I can look at Nancy Pelosi. I can look at Bill Barr and say, they are harming the church and the unity of the church by their behavior. Um, and I can grieve for that. Um, it's really like going in our conscience and asking the Lord, what does he want me to do with that? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe there's something he wants me to do. But I think the problem is, is when we see the news, we see the headline, and then we immediately think we got to have a firm opinion and then immediately think we got to do something about it. I think that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk maybe trying to be more practical. Um, kind of the goal of this whole discussion here is let's talk about our three pillars and how they should inform maybe this particular situation, but our reaction to these perceived situations in general, you know? Um, so where would you go with that? Yeah. I mean, I think more of like uh, summarizing how, 
I think these pillars have been a part of this discussion and uh, I don't know my, my, my own thinking through this. Like I have to believe that uh, as much as God is pursuing me, that he's pursuing Archbishop Corleone, Nancy Pelosi, everyone who's a part of this and that God desperately wants them to be in union with him and with the church. I mean, for me, it's like, there's nothing I can do about the situation, except obviously to talk about it on a podcast. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think we take that, that reality to prayer. Mm -hmm. And we really, and we really ask the Lord, how are my thoughts and feelings on this? Not like Christ. Mm -hmm. How have I not been made like Christ in this way? Mm -hmm. And ask for the Lord to fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. What's the danger that if we don't start from that that starting place, um, like the last couple, last decade or so, we've had these discussions around uh, sexual orientation or lifestyle choices or whatever, and it's it seems so obvious. Sticker on the back of your vehicle, you shouldn't come in, or you know, your Catholic light whatever, or you're voting for that party, you're obviously, like, it's just manifestly obvious that you're, in, you know, here's your handbasket, keeps lighting, you know. Yeah. Um, that goes away when we have this, uh, this foundation, right? It's like an inoculation against jumping to those conclusions. Yeah, we don't see enemies anymore. We, we actually see, and, and this goes back to Pope Francis's vision for the church. The church is a field hospital. Not the church's soldiers. No, no, no. We don't have enemies. Other people are not our enemies. They're mm -hmm. people who are hurt and wounded. And it's precisely the church and the sacraments and the people in the church who have been, or who are being transformed into Christ, mm -hmm. who are able to heal. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't have enemies anymore. I have people in need of healing, just like I'm in need of healing. Yeah. This makes me think about his use of the phrase self-referential, because I think that's not only leveled at um, uh, radical traditionalists or whatever, but anybody who is in that mindset of me versus them, you are obviously, I mean, just look at the way you're talking, look at the way you're dressing or how you treat other people. You're you're just something else. You know, you're a piece of work. Well, what on what basis do you make that judgment? I would imagine it's a self-referential viewpoint. Any of us, absolutely me, God save me, uh, are, are, you know, doing that twice on Tuesdays. So this, so this kerygma, like we talked last time, it starts with the foundation that God desires and loves everyone. Yep. So with the next one then, with how does um, the viewpoint of theosis and of course, communion, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, is the, the uh, it's is it safe to say it's the sacrament of theosis or it's the how would you articulate that i mean i would say all the sacraments are the sacraments of theosis uh yeah. the church says it's the source and summon of our faith because it is jesus christ um there's an excellence about it that yeah i don't know yeah i mean i think there's a sense of where we need to be going to communion with the recognition that we the lord still has work to do in us to make us more mm -hmm. like christ um, and to hit the last point with the, our last pillar with Pope Francis, his vision for the church has, mm -hmm. sh needs to shape all of this discussion, his vision for a church that it's a hospital, mm -hmm. um, and not, and not, you know, a warring party with enemies. Mm -hmm. Um, that's absolutely important. In a way, I like how, you know, with this conversation, we don't get to the end and we're like, here's what you should do to be a good person. It's like, no, I don't think it's ever possible to actually say that. Um, well, maybe, I don't know. It's more important to kind of take a step back from all of our ideas about reality and get back to the reality of the thing. And the reality of what it means to be Catholic is to, well, to be of the Pope Francis generation is to be grounded in these three concepts. That is a reality out of which we have to look at the world. And then maybe if you are in a position of authority and influence, and maybe it is your responsibility to say something or to influence along these lines, um, then this is the foundation point. And if it's not, 
and you don't have that role and people are not looking to you like, oh, you know, you have to have an opinion on it. Maybe it's better not to, especially when those who, as we've said earlier, who are in authority are still trying to figure it out themselves because it's not an easy answer. And I don't trust people who, <laughs> I think like you said earlier, I don't trust people who, who have clear-cut opinions because usually that's, a little more thinking needs to happen here, a little more uh, inner growth. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Any last thoughts uh, to share? Otherwise we will wrap up. I think we're good. Alrighty. Well, before we go, um, if you enjoyed this, this conversation, if it was helpful, heck, if it raised a ton more questions for you, please go ahead, uh, send them in. We'd love to know, you know, what's on your mind. Uh, if this video was helpful, please hit that like button. It does help more people to learn more about Paul, more about Pope Francis Generation. This show is sponsored by the free Catholic community on smartcatholics.com. We are free of trolls and ads and toxicity, faithful to the Holy Father, Pope Francis, and the church. We're committed to a culture of kindness and learning. If that sounds like you, come and check us out at smartcatholics.com. So thanks again for joining us in this conversation. Um, if you've got a question that maybe we can answer in the next episode, or you've got some feedback for us, visit us at popefrancisgeneration.com to send us a message. Paul, anything that uh, you want to let us know about PopeFrancisGeneration.com? Yeah, I mean, that's the place to go um, for all the podcasts and all of my writing. And uh, if you're a paid subscriber, you get to watch episodes ahead of time, um, ask questions, and uh, pitch ideas for future shows. Yeah. Till next time, please say a short prayer for yourself and for us. Remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. Thanks again, everyone. God bless you.